Welcome to Day Beautiful. I'm Adam Vitcavage, and this is a monthly podcast where I go in depth with an author releasing their first book. If you like what you hear, check out daybeautiful.net for more author interviews and book recommendations. This month's guest is the senior editor at Electric Literature's Recommended Reading and is a staff writer at LitHub. His short stories have also basically appeared everywhere. His name is Brandon Taylor, and his debut novel is Real Life. You can follow Brandon on Twitter, which you definitely should because we spend most of the podcast talking about social media and its place in the world right now. His Twitter is B-L-G-T-Y-L-R. Just search Brandon Taylor, but I'll link him in the notes. You'll definitely want to follow him. Trust me. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Brandon Taylor, author of Real Life. Well, thanks, Brandon, for uh, taking the time to talk to me and being on the podcast today. How's everything going where you are? Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's great. It's snowing, so there will be fresh powder on the ground to cover up all the gross brown stuff. Yeah, I just moved to Denver, and it snowed last night, and I don't have like a windshield scraper or brush, because I just moved from Phoenix. I have no clue what I'm doing with the snow. Oh, no. You have to get one. I... Like I it- <laughs> Yes. Like it doesn't seem important until it is critically important. Yeah, I used a scarf today to w- w- wipe off my windshield on my way to the bank. Oh, ingenuity. <laughs> yes. Ingenuity, yeah. And, um, and your book, Real Life, comes out in February, and I love it. Can you tell listeners what the book is about from your perspective? Yeah, um, so Real Life comes out in February, as you said, and to me it is a campus novel about Wallace, who is black and gay and from the South, and he's moved to the Midwest to pursue a graduate degree in biochemistry. Um, And one one summer afternoon, his experiment that he's like been betting everything on, he discovers it ruined, and he kind of spends the weekend uh, questioning all the decisions that have brought him to this point. And before I dive into the book, and I'm not going to ask how autobiographical this is, but you also have a background in science, right? Yeah, my undergraduate degree is in chemistry. And for about four or five years, I was pursuing a PhD in biochemistry before I left it to go to the Iowa Iowa Writers Workshop. And I think we were DMing at one point on Twitter, and I said how I fell ass backwards into like the literary world. And you kind of said the same. How did you switch from biochemistry to you know, being in one of the best writing workshops in America? I mean, I should also say that the UW-Madison biochemistry program, when I matriculated, was the top-ranked program in the country for biochemistry. Okay, um, and So you're I, no joke in either science yeah, or writing. I take it very seriously. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I was doing both for a while. I was mm. um, writing essays and short stories and trying to publish them. And at the same time that I was working, like, 15 hours a day in the lab and and I was just like doing both at the same time until I reached a point where I was where I really had to make a decision because I'd sort of reached this branch point at which I was doing both very seriously and sort of I needed to take the next step um in both fields and it's just like impossible to to do them both um but you know I think Twitter actually was the great facilitator of that because I could be in the Midwest and doing science and also kind of have my finger in the literary world and sort of know what was happening. And the number of things that I've been invited to over the years, because people fully think I live in New York City. Um, <laughs> and I'm just like, no, I'm just everywhere because of Twitter. <laughs> like, um, yeah, so it was uh, the internet really facilitated a lot of my like literary community. And then during that the time when you were still like doing biochemistry trying to publish were there short stories published then or did you really you know break out after you focused full-time on writing no i mean my first short story was published i think um shortly i think like in my second year as a phd student um i published my first short story and then my second short story came shortly thereafter. I had like this real hot streak where I was publishing like once a week oh, for wow. about two months or something. Um, and I was, I think it's true that I published more when I was getting my degree in science than when I came to Iowa. I think there was like a, my first year at Iowa, I didn't publish anything. Um, and I was very productive when I was a scientist. I wrote so many stories. Um, and when I was a science student, I the first real sort of significant step I took was to go to the Lambda 
literary um, retreat for emerging writers where I studied with Justin Torres for a week. And he told me, he's like, you, you can be a writer. You, you, you're good enough. Like you can focus on this. Um, and when I got home from that retreat, I sent out my first story and it was accepted right away. So I was like, ah, yes, this is how <laughs> it will always be. And like, that is not true. But, you know, I had this immediate success that really just made me want to keep doing it. Um, so like, no, I was doing both um, at the same time, really sort of from the outset. And then not to talk too much about your past, because I do want to get to the book, but that first year at Iowa, how did it, this is very broad, but how did it change you as a writer? I mean, my first year at Iowa was really difficult. It was a really um, brutal experience. It was really hard, and, and I didn't make a lot of friends, and people weren't really into my work. And, and you know, like, my teachers weren't that into me, and, and I don't think I learned a lot, like, technically from the class. Um, but what I did get was just, like, free time suddenly. Like, I wasn't having to go to lab every day. Um, and so I just had all this time to try a bunch of stuff and to figure out what I was interested in. Um, and even though my teachers weren't like really into my work, I would think very deeply about the stuff they said. And some of some of it, I'd be like, oh, that's dumb. I don't agree. And I would like try to prove it wrong. And then some of it, I'd be like, I don't I don't entirely agree, but I don't entirely disagree. But like, how can I sort of take what's useful from this and try to like make some use of it? Um, so it was, you know, it was a period of time in which I was learning a lot about myself as a writer, but a lot of that learning was sort of motivated by just, you know, licking my wounds and feeling bad about myself. Yeah. I, I cause I've seen you, I think, or maybe it's just in general right now on Twitter and like, which is the worst place, but also the best place. There's this whole idea of like, is an MFA worth it? And, you know, I've seen like writers who have gone through MFAs talking about, yeah, it works for me, but it doesn't work for everyone. And like, and you you were outspoken. I think you even talked about that on Twitter about how like, yeah, it wasn't the best situation for you, but it really propelled you forward. Yeah, yeah. I think that an MFA. I mean, one, you should never pay for it if you can help it because it's just. Um, but an MFA can be really, really useful if you know what you're hoping to get out of it. Like, if you go into it with like a really sort of set of concrete goals in mind you know like my goals were to like find a mentor who would like set my life on fire and change me um and two to write as many books as I possibly could and I didn't find a mentor but I wrote like four manuscripts here so I um so I I did achieve some of my goals and I think that the great thing about an MFA program is that it gives you structure which can be really helpful and it gives you free time and it gives you hopefully financial support and health insurance for a period of two years so that you can really get some stuff done. And that stuff doesn't look the same for everybody. Like it's not going to be, I'm going to write two books. It's not even necessarily that I'm going to write a book. It can be, I'm going to figure out how to have an arts practice or I'm going to figure out how to like sit down at the page and figure out what works for me or like figure out what I'm interested in. Like it, can look different, but I think a lot of people go into MFA programs just woo-woo, free-willing, willy-nilly, and they don't go in thinking about, okay, what do I want this experience to look like? How can I get the most out of this educational experience? And I feel like I was only able to do that because I had already spent, you know, four or five years, like, in a graduate program, so I knew, I was like, you only have limited time. How do I design this so that I can get the most out of this experience for myself? Out of those four manuscripts, were any of them the bones of real life? Or oh no, I wrote real life before I went to the program. I wrote um, I wrote real life and my short story collection, Filthy Animals. I wrote both of those books before I even found out I got into Iowa. Um, and then I got into Iowa, and then I went there and I wrote four other manuscripts while I was while I was here. But those two books were basically done before I came. Did you? just put real life away for the years you were at Iowa or did you tinker with it there? No, I didn't, I didn't touch it at all. I put it away. I mean, I'm one of these people who believes that a workshop is the worst place for anything that you hope to publish one day because they will kill it. Like there's something about a workshop that just turns anything you put up for workshop into pate. Like it just chews on it and chews on it and chews on it. And then there's nothing of interest left in it for you because everyone has like dissected it to death. <laughs> um, and so 
I used I used Iowa as a prompt to write new work. And so what I would do is every time I was up for a workshop, I would write a new story. And for me, having a deadline is really helpful. And so I would like write the story, put it up for a workshop, but I would just like completely ignore everything anyone said about it because I knew that it wasn't going to be helpful because my first workshop experience, I put up a story and my workshop teacher told me that it was not a story. And not only was it not a story, but I was like a coward essentially because of the way I wrote. And he just like tore it apart. And then, you know, three months later, Roxanne Gay published it. So, and so I knew early on that like workshop is wrong often. And it's often not the goal of workshop to make your work better. It's often just like this incredibly navel-gazy thing. Um, and so, no, I mean, I didn't put up real life or filthy animals, none of those stories, um, because I didn't want workshop to taint them or ruin them. And I really wanted them to, to be like free of, you know, the, the fingers of workshop. How long after Iowa or was it during Iowa that you started your like writing relationship with like Lit Hub and Electric Literature? That was also before Iowa. I think I, I think I became, um, I just graduated at, uh, from Iowa in May 2019. Okay, um, see, I yeah. have a timeline w- way off for you. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I so I was in Madison from like 2013 ish to 2017. Okay. Like late, like late 2017. I matriculated to Iowa in August of 2017, and then. I was there from 2017 and I graduated in May, 2019. Um, And so I started working at Electric Lit, I think like, it feels so long ago now, I think like 2015, 2016. Um, And then shortly after that, I started writing essays for Lit Hub. And then I think the spring of 2017, Johnny Diamond asked me if I wanted to come on as a staff writer. Um, And I remember this really well because I got the staff writer thing at, with lit hub i got a promotion at electric lit i got into iowa like that like all in sort of a string of like a week or something like that um and people on twitter were just like wow you're having one of those weeks and i'm like i know it'll never happen again um yeah and so all of this my relationship with lit hub and electric uh electric lit were before i i came to iowa okay and i think that's important too like i didn't realize that it's important for listeners and people who are pursuing writing to realize there's not just one path oh, to totally. Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, part of my sort of intense, like internet presence is because I was lonely in the Midwest and I didn't, I didn't know any writers. Like there's a very great MFA program at UW Madison, but they wanted nothing to do with me. Like they didn't even want me coming to their readings. And, and I just felt so lonely and Really, it was like finding book Twitter that that led me to so many of the opportunities that that I had. Like that's how I found out about Lambda, and that's how I found out like what an like what an MFA was, and all these short stories that I had from writers I'd never even heard of. Like that's how I found Alexander Chi, um, and so I had I built this community. Um, because I was so lonely and in the Midwest, and everyone else was in New York City. Um, and the internet is also how I came to write for Johnny Diamond at Lit Hub. He's my editor there. And my very first essay with them, he reached out to me because I'd been tweeting about, I was very a very angry young man on the internet. And I'd been tweeting about um, sensitivity readers and, and diversity in publishing. And I had this whole thread back when I believed in threads. And he's like, do you want to turn this into an essay? And I said, I've never written an essay in my life. I'm not an essayist. Don't talk to me. And he's like, are you sure? Like we can do this. And so I, I wrote the essay and then they put it up on LitHub and it like went viral or something mm. in a very sort of lit Twittery way. Yeah. Um, and that's how I came to write for LitHub was just like tweeting so much. Um, you say you don't believe in threads anymore, but your Twitter presence <laughs> is, I think my favorite thing on the internet, to be honest with you. Oh, I, that- that's so nice. <laughs> I look forward to seeing what Brandon Taylor is doing in Iowa every morning when I wake up. <laughs> usually, like, talking about some man I've seen in a cafe, it's, usually. It's um... definitely men in cafes, Carol. Oh, yeah. Which, oh. Is on, <laughs> which is on my notes to talk about later, of course. Ooh, exciting. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about your Twitter presence, then. I mean, it started because you were lonely, basically. 
Yeah, I mean, it started because I was lonely. And I mean, it actually, I mean, it, people don't know this, but like I began as like a very serious, like, um, like TLC reality show tweeter. Um, I had like 300 followers and I was, I was writing these, these little essays and short stories. And I told my roommate one night, I was like, I should try to have a thousand followers by the end of the year. And it was like October. I was like, I should try to have a thousand followers by the end of the year. Because then when I tweet out my links to short stories, people might read them. And, and so I started watching TLC reality shows and tweeting about them because those people seemed really cool. Like in the, the hashtags, everyone was like really nice. And it was like a community, like live tweeting shows. Um, but then I somehow found my way. It, like, I, I remember thinking, like, wouldn't it be cool if instead of TLC Twitter, there was, like, like a book Twitter? <laughs> just, like, not even knowing it was already, like, a thing. Um, and then I, I just casually searched for, like, an author's name, and they popped up, and I found my way into, like, this weird community um, and started engaging with them in that way, just, like, tweeting out books I, I really, really loved. And, and people started like paying attention to me, which was nice for like a really depressed, anxious graduate student. Um, when people are suddenly like, ooh, you're a person with cool things to say. Um, I mean, I do think part of that had a lot to do with, you know, at the time that I was kind of learning how to be on the internet, people were really like interested in retweeting like angry brown voices about things. And, and I, it started like this horrible positive feedback loop where like the angrier I would get online about representation, the more attention I would get. And so I would like keep getting worked up and like in this frothing rage and people would just keep retweeting me and I kept getting all these followers. Um, but it was making me like really unhappy. And my roommate was like, you know, Brandon, if you don't like that stuff so much, like if you're so angry about like, white people in movies just don't watch any movies with white people in it and I was like that's a good idea so like for a year I didn't watch or engage in television or, or media that had like only white people in it unless it sort of met a specific set of criteria and then I stopped tweeting so angrily about <laughs> these things and my Twitter presence I think began to like morph into something else um and and yeah, I mean, it was like a real sort of concerted effort for me to just find a place to fit in and to find people who liked stuff I liked and and also to engage in it in a way that didn't leave me feeling exhausted and sick because, you know, a lot of my early internet presence was just, I was so angry all the time about stuff that didn't even really matter and then I try to explain it to a person who was not online about why Riptide publishing publishing like these horrible gay romance novels is like horrible to me and they just be like what is this why do you care so much um and so yeah it was like learning how to be on the internet and like learning how not to just be a person who gets retweeted for being angry all the time mm -hmm. and but you still have a big presence on Twitter now how how what do you, I mean, I know what you tweet about, and mostly everyone listening to this is coming to it because of your name, not my name, but what do you tweet about now for people who may not know who Brandon Taylor is? Oh, yeah, I mean, I think I tweet a lot about, I think I tweet a lot about books, I tweet a lot about uh, Carol, uh, I, lately I've been tweeting a lot about Brad Leone from Bon Appetit Test Kitchen. Um, I tweet, you know, I try to tweet about things that interest me, so it's often like queer readings of history or queer readings of the media. It's um, just like observations about the way the world operates. Like I try to tweet a lot more from a place of, if not like positivity, then at least from like amusement. <laughs> like I, I try to always be tweeting from a place of like, like observation and, and humor and wit. And I'm always trying to find something interesting to say about things that people might not find interesting because I find that a lot of the stuff that that almost everyone else is looking at I just find really uninteresting or like really boring like I don't care about a lot of the media that other people are interested in and that's not the fault of the media I just like <laughs> I just like don't really I'm not in New York City and I don't have bangs so like I don't care about a lot of the shows that people love so mm -hmm. much um and so I find myself trying to like follow the grain of my own curiosity and interest. Um, and so it's a lot of Carol, frankly, a lot of gay, a lot of gay stuff. 
And history. I tweet so much about history. And as someone who tweets a lot, you're also writing a lot. What is your, your balance like of when it's time to write versus when it's time to have have fun on the internet or elsewhere? Oh my god, I wish I could. Ooh, I... Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, one of the only talents I have as a writer is like my capacity to generate thousands of words very quickly. Like I'm not, like I'm not a slow writer. I write really, really fast. And, um, and so when it's time to write, I just like sit down, I open up a document and I just go to town. I just, I just start writing and I try not to stop until it's done. Like I do a lot of one sitting drafts. Um, and, and the, the thing that I've learned about myself, and this comes from being a scientist and being sort of chained to a lab bench for hours a day is that I know myself enough to know that I can't forbid myself from Twitter. Like if I, like if I log out of Twitter and I like close the browser, the only thing my mind is going to be thinking about is either, wow, look at me. I'm so virtuous. I closed out of the browser and all I'll think about is that browser or it's thinking like, well, this is so hard. How am I going to do this? If I like open up Twitter again, I'm such a failure. And so what I do is I just like leave it logged in. I just like leave it available. And so if I'm drafting, I'm drafting, I'm drafting. And I sort of, you know, my attention short circuits and I open up Twitter, then so be it. I, I try to be very forgiving to myself because the less pressure I can put on myself, the better. Because the more pressure I put on myself, like the more focused I am on the thing that I'm trying not to look at. And so I just take away that tension and I leave it as an available thing it's like okay if I tweet then I tweet you know if I don't tweet then I don't tweet but what I need to be focusing on is this draft and so I that's how I sort of create like a space of permission to write and then if you change so much on how you tweet and and interact with culture um in the past few years how how was going back to real life after you know years of being at Iowa or the the years of being at Iowa what was it like revisiting this manuscript oh it was horrifying i mean it's like it was really horrifying because one of the things i mean what i will say about my time at iowa is that i learned how to write fiction and i wrote real life before i had studied fiction before i even knew anything and so i when i opened it i was just like "Ooh, it's gonna be (laughs) it's gonna be a mess and and i and I did put the novel away for the the three years or so. And I will, we also like sold basically a first draft of this novel. I think we fixed like two typos in it before we sent it out to publishers. Um, and so I knew that there were going to be things in it that I desperately wanted to fix. Um, and, and so I was just like preparing for the worst. And when I opened it, I thought, oh no, here we go. I've got to like fix this and this and this and this. Um, and I went through like a like an intense period where I essentially rewrote the beginning of the novel like three or four times just on my own with no, you know, editorial oversight. I just needed to really fix all the stuff that I needed to fix. And so by the time my editor came to it, he was like, this is richer, it's better, it's broader, it's, you know, it's much stronger. But you've also put all this extra stuff in here you don't need. And I call it the Iowa bloat, which is just like all this excessive interiority, all this excessive explaining, like trying to justify certain things that in the previous draft had just been written and they were okay. And my editor really had to like excise a lot of the Iowa bloat from the novel. Um, and that said, the novel, you know, it the first draft was like 69,000 words and the final draft was like 83,000 words. And that came with me cutting like a solid 10, 12,000 and just like rewriting. Um, so it was really scary to like re-encounter this past version of myself, but it was, you know, I thought it was also just like a really rich and wonderful experience because it was kind of like a time capsule of like a different time in my life (laughs) for sure and and it is about you know life in a midwest town um you know a gay man numerous things questioning everything about what happened to his life uh, seeking a partner what did you change i guess not what did you hope for when you were when you were expanding the novel, what were you seeking out during that time? I think I think the thing that I was most um, interested in in like making better, fuller, or, or richer, or more present on the page was like I was really just like I. It was really important to me as a as a 
Black queer person to make sure that the novel was not too protective was not too protective of its white characters. I think one of the one of the themes of the novel is that when you live in a system that seeks to like erase you, you learn all sorts of ways to make that system feel better about your presence within it. And and it was really important to me to make sure that I as the author wasn't doing that with this novel that I wasn't going too easy on whiteness and that I wasn't shying away from the complexity of Wallace's experience and that and that I was being honest and truthful about what it means to be like a black queer person in that space. Because when I was writing the novel, I wasn't thinking about that at all. When I was writing the novel, I was like, I'm going to write a campus novel. And this time there's going to be a black gay person in it. And this time he's going to be the one talking. Um, and that was the primary sort of, like the primary force of the first draft of the novel. And so revisiting it, I was just really, really determined to make sure that the novel was sufficiently complicated and, and, and said sufficiently complex and truthful things about the way that people exist in these spaces together and that there isn't one person who was right all of the time. Like I didn't want to write a simple novel. And so for me, most of the work was going back to the scenes, making sure that all of the characters get their say and making sure that when they say stuff, it's coming from a place of real human motivation and that it's not just coming because I have some moral to preach to the reader. Um, and so there's a lot of revisiting dialogue, revisiting interiority, like shaving scenes down and rebuilding them from the ground up. Um, and then the scene that was the hardest for me was that scene in, at the start of section six, um, where Wallace and Miller have to talk after there's been this um, this divulge, you know, Wallace divulges something about himself to Miller, and Miller returns the favor. And my editor was like, "This is too fluent. It's too written. Like it has to be, um, like it has to be more complicated." And so it was really the most difficult scene to do because, like, when someone says something so huge to you, like the only answer is often silence. And it's like, how do you? <laughs> how do you render that on the page? Um, it was just really, yeah. So like a lot of the most difficult scenes were not like the multi, were not like the 15 characters in one scene scene. It was like the two people needing to have a difficult conversation. Those were the hardest to, to revisit. And so most of my revising energy was spent on trying to get those right. And what I picked up from the book is were those complexities about what it means you know, to be a queer black person, which I am not, um, in, in modern academia, in the modern world, do you feel, I mean, I, I don't, I doubt you pay attention closely to reviews, but do you feel people are picking up on everything you put forth in that second draft years later? Yeah. I mean, I will say that by the end we had six, there were six, I went through six drafts. Oh, six drafts, yes. Four on my own and two with my editor. I'm, I'm a very aggressive reviser. Um, and, you know, the thing that I've noticed about the reviews is that people tend to focus a lot on the fact of Wallace being from Alabama and suddenly finding himself in the Midwest. And there's this tenor of the discourse that seems to imply that Wallace felt at home in the South. And I just don't think that that's really in the book. Like, like I don't think that Wallace has ever felt at home anywhere. Um, and part of his part of his very particular uh, anxiety is that he doesn't know how other people live in the world. And so he's always scanning everything that someone says or does to him for clues as to how to fit in. Um, and so that's the one thing that I don't think has come across, at least in like the early reviews. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, to me, this novel, yes, is about, what it means to be queer and black in the world because Wallace is queer and black in the world. But I think, but I think the novel is also about what it's like to wake up one day in your like late twenties and realize that you don't even really recognize yourself anymore because of the decisions you've made. And it's like a very particular kind of like millennial, like anxiety of like, I'm in this place. I don't know how I got to be in this place. I don't have a reason to leave it or stay. And if I leave, I don't have any money. What will I do? Where will I go? I have no family. Like my home planet blew up and I am here stranded amongst these, these aliens. Um, 
And so to me, like that was like the the core anxiety of the novel. But people have been, I think, ascribing that mostly to Wallace's queerness and to his to his blackness. And and I guess I would just sort of push back against that and and say like, well, those are like that is like what it means to be 28 in America today. Like that's what it means to be a graduate student today. And I think that people are responding, wanting to ascribe Wallace's anxiety to his race and his queerness. And I'm like, well, if Wallace were like a straight white man, this novel would still be about that anxiety, except mm. Jeffrey Eugenity has already wrote that novel. <laughs> you know? Like yeah. And, I, and I, I guess even I did that. I, I ascribe the, that black queerness to it and I think that's just easy, regardless if that's right or wrong, for a lot of people to do. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think it's, like, entirely wrong. Like, that is very much, like, a part of his anxiety. But I think that there's something really dangerous in saying that, like, this is derived, this is a derived quality of his blackness and his queerness. And I think, like, even if Wallace were amongst other black queer people, he would still feel this, like, incredible anxiety because he is a person, because of his family history and because of his life, he just doesn't know how to how to squeeze in with other people. You know, he just doesn't, for him, it's always work to like fit in with people. And he always sees the ways that people betray each other and themselves. And he's always just like so suspicious. And, and so like, I think it's, it's easy. Yes, because it fits a certain narrative, but I, but I do think at least to me, I hope this is true that the novel makes some, makes a case for like a more complicated reading of his kind of like, out of you know sort of fitting not fitting in mm -hmm. and I think the one thing I really loved about your work in this novel and outside of it is your, your grasp on the sentence and language and for someone who you said your best quality is you can just write a lot real fast and then you also revise to death when does that come into play when you start thinking about when you start thinking about the sentence and how it sounds or is that is that in the when it, when you're just blurting out words, or is it, is it in the revision? Yeah, I mean, I think the words. I mean, it's it's interesting. I I I never think of myself as like a person who 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 pays a great deal of attention to my own sentences, you know, because like to me, those are people who are always like carving it out of stone, chiseling in every comma. Um, but for me. I, I feel that I can't write until it sounds right. And, and so sometimes I'm just stuck on a story, not because of plot, but because I haven't yet found the voice of the story. But usually when I get the first sentence right, everything else just flows from that. And then I don't have to do a lot of sculpting. Um, usually my revisions are just like excising paragraphs and putting in other paragraphs. They all sort of more or less sound the same. Um, I don't do a lot of like, line level edits and usually when I when editors are editing me there there aren't a lot of line stuff I mean sometimes it's like you dropped a word or like fix this comma or like can you make this more clear but it's not a lot of like you need to drastically alter this voice or this style because normally the 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 voice arrives um the voice arrives more or less at the same time as the subjects that will sort of be um portrayed by the voice and once it's right, I don't have to usually fix it a lot. And so I'm just like blurting out passages. And my revision is usually, you know, it's along the lines of making the story feel more, not authentic, but to sort of make the character's motivations feel clearer or to make things more tense. Because I, my first drafts are always like full of like evasions and avoidances. And so I have to like <laughs> excise those. Um, but as far as the sentences, the the sentences usually come more or less like really solid. Yeah. So you're just basically saying you're a natural genius and <laughs> in in writing and biochemistry. I get it. Okay. I don't think that's true. <laughs> I mean, there are some people. I mean, but I also think my sentences. I feel I feel good about them. You know, I feel like they're very solid and they're very clear. I mean, the virtue that I hold mo that I hold highest in is lucidity, like lucid clear writing is like to me 
the the thing that I seek most to achieve. But I think there are real geniuses in the world, like Pam Zhang and Garth Greenwell and my friend Huxley Michaels. Like they write really astonishing sentences that make my breath stop. And I feel like what I'm doing is something just like squeezing rocks together. <laughs> <laughs> and now that the book's on its way out, we kind of already talked about what you hope readers get out of it. What are, what are you hoping to get out of this book once it's in the world? <sighs> That's a great, I mean, the thing that I'm really looking forward to is meeting people who have read it. Uh, something that I really, something that I struggle with is that I often can't see the shape of the thing that I have made until someone tells me what it is, which is why I wanted a mentor so badly. <laughs> so that they would tell me what I was and what I was doing. Um, and so the part that I'm looking most forward to is just meeting readers and deepening my own understanding of the work. And and that's what I'm, yeah, I mean, just like meeting other people and talking about story and talking about characters and, and stuff. I mean, one of my favorite things to do is when I finish a story, I, I send it to one of my friends and then we just like gossip about the characters, like they're real people. And that to me is just like so much fun to do. Uh, and I look forward to that part of it. And I think also just like getting it out in the world. I wrote this book, you know, over like a five week span, three years ago coming up now. And I'm just like ready for it to be, <laughs> to be into the world and out, out of my desk, like just leave. Um, it feels like I'm like, I'm losing a ghost somehow, <laughs> which is not a bad feeling. <laughs> And you also mentioned uh, a short short story collection that is done. Yeah, yeah, filthy animals. We sold it at the same time mm -hmm. as real life in a in a deal with Riverhead, um, and so I turned in what I think will be like a solid sort of draft to my editor uh, like a month or so ago. Um, and so yeah, that book will come out soon ish. Um, relatively the in, in the literary yeah. world yeah yeah right like which means like a two years <laughs> down the down the line mm -hmm. yeah those are all published stories then or no, no. i mean Ooh. no they're not very oh, secrets yeah so some of those stories have not been published and some of them i wrote at iowa um mm. and so yeah it, it'll be a mix of familiar faces and familiar faces that have been drastically recast and some stories that no one has seen yet. Um, yeah. So I'm excited to, to show people that too. <laughs> Terrific. And I want to loop back to a few things because I forgot to ask, but, and your idea of a mentor, you said you didn't find one at Iowa. Have you found one since? Do you feel you want one or how is that working for you now? I mean, it's one of the core I call it one of the core disappointments of my life to have not had a mentor. Um, I really wanted Garth Greenwald to be my mentor, but alas, we became very good friends instead. Um, not that friends can't be mentors, but like <laughs> there's just something about once you become someone's very, very close friend, like you just, you think of them differently than you would think of as a mentor. Um, and that there are writers who I look to and who I admire and who I sort of emulate and hope to emulate, but who, who, who I have like a sort of distant relationship to, and I wouldn't call them mentors, but they are certainly examples by which I live my life. Um, and so, no, I, I still don't have a mentor and sort of this sense of, you know, like there are all these stories of people going to MFA programs and like their teachers sh seeing something in their work and kind of like plucking them out of the, the unruly masses and anointing them and, and pushing them on and encouraging them. And I like encouragement is not a thing that I encountered at Iowa, like in any capacity. Um, and so I still don't have that, but instead I have a really supportive network of peers and friends and a whole cast of incredible writers I can look to for an example. So I don't have a mentor, but I have, I think something better maybe and i think we spent most of this conversation talking about twitter because like i said it's the best and worst place in the world you tweet a lot about carol when did your i'm going to call it an obsession start with carol so i think i saw the film trailer somewhere like the winter before the winter before the movie came out like in like in november or something and I was like, oh, what is this? I was deep in my not watching white people face. I was like, what is this movie about middle-class lesbians? Ew, I'm not watching this. 
And then I, um, and then I found out that it was like, that there was like a book to go with it. And I was like, well, I'll read this book. I'll see what it's about. And it is The Price of Salt um, is one of the most incredible books ever written. It is such an astonishing book. It's so brilliant. And I just sort of fell in love with it. And when the movie finally came to Madison, Wisconsin, I watched it and just like loved every moment of it. I think the book is superior in every way <laughs> um it's just like a better book than it is a movie but the movie itself is such a gorgeous like piece of cinema like it's so rich and like Kate Blanchett is beautiful and Rooney Mara is beautiful and all the coats like it's just there's something so luxe and luxurious about it and it I think it has what every gay man loves which is like a beautiful woman in great coats living in a big old dollhouse. Like it's just, it's perfect. Yeah. And so for me, the, the obsession began with reading the price of salt and just seeing in it a whole universe of possibility. Like it's just one of the most perfect books ever written. And I saw Did you just watch Gilmore girls for the first time? Yes, I did just watch Gilmore girls for the first time. I watched the whole thing all the way through. Um, I was also having like a lot of like health things. And, and so I would just like spend hours in bed under my blanket, just like watching the Gilmore girls. And like, it harkens back to this period of time where there were shows about just like normal people living in small towns, like Everwood and all these other shows that I really, really liked. And it was just really delightful. Like It was a really delightful experience and there were so many seasons that you could just like keep yes. going and going um yeah it was yeah and yeah it's it, great it's a lovely experience my mother um ha- lived with me for about six months and I, I just needed a show to watch with her that we could like mm. have in common and i was like you'll love this it's a lot like murder she wrote <laughs> and i and i think it is i think murder she wrote and gilmore girls are the same show in a lot of yeah. ways <laughs> i mean it's not not and... yeah exactly I just love it because it was, I mean, there's a way, there's a way definitely that um, Gilmore Girls walked, Gilmore Girls crawled so that girls could run. Like there are a bunch of shows that are just sort of more or less directly descended from Gilmore Girls in terms of like the dialogue and the fusion of like small town personal drama with like this, these great pop culture references interwoven. Um, and it's also like a throwback in many ways to like, you know, the Andy Griffith show and leave it to Beaver. Cause it's got a kind of like, you know, it's every episode is kind of like, we all learn a lesson. Um, and so it's just like this great, like fusion of all these great things about American television. It really brings them all, together and there are all these shows that that certainly wouldn't exist without <laughs> Gilmore Girls exactly love it <laughs> and uh, be- before I wrap up with your book recommendations are there any other like pop culture obsessions that you don't tweet about as often but you would like to talk about oh my gosh there are all of these horrible Netflix shows that are like there's one called I recently watched it it's what is it called it's called Virgin River about this nurse who moves from the big city to this small town in upstate California. And it was recently renewed for a second season. And the guy who plays um, who plays Riggs on Grey's Anatomy plays like the very hunky bar owner in this show. And it's just like, it's like a warm blanket. You just like wrap yourself up in it and watch this woman try to fit in. And, it's, and she looks like Amy Adams. And it's just perfect. It's like a perfect show to just like watch and not tweet about. Just like watch and enjoy the spectacle. Um, it's like that, like all these sort of horrible Netflix shows. And what's another pop culture thing that I'm really, really into that I, I mean, the thing is that I tweet about everything in my life. Um, but I guess that. I mean, it's it's a sickness, really. Um, but I've been really into um, Tchaikovsky lately. That's not really pop culture, but it's a thing that I'm just, like, devoutly passionate about. <laughs> Tchaikovsky, I get really passionate about composers. Like, they come like the wind, and I just spend weeks and sometimes months just, like, doing a deep dive into a composer. Um, and, yeah, that brings me great joy. Mm. Yeah, I definitely noticed. I picked up on the the composers every now and then. I'll, I'll see a tweet storm. 
Oh, not yeah, not a storm. Uh, say, oh, Brandon's really into Rachmaninoff these days. <laughs> what is he going through? Or like, oh, he's having another Chopin day. <laughs> well, that's what I love about it. Like, I feel this is the first time I've talked to you voice to voice, but I feel like I know you because of your internet presence, and I think that marks a great person in the in 2020. I mean, I that's what I, I mean. The thing is, the thing about the internet is that people can tell when you're not being genuine, and they can tell when you're being fake. And I'm just like, who has the time to like make up a whole separate persona? I mean, yes, my internet persona is like this heightened, very loud version of myself, but it's all based in fact. Like I really did spend the winter reading about the War of the Roses. I really did do that. Like that is like a real true thing about me. Um, And I think like, yeah, and part of it is like, it's rooted in, as I was saying earlier, the internet made me feel less lonely. So yeah, all of it's real to some degree. <laughs> yeah, I'm expecting your follow-up book to be real Twitter, and it's just all your tweets. That's not a bad idea. <laughs> I would make love that it. Happen. Please do tell tell Riverhead or whoever to make that happen. Real um, tweets, yeah. <laughs> real tweets. That's better. See, you're a way better writer than me, right there. Um, so wrapping up, you already mentioned you know Pam Zhang. And Gart's book. What are other books that you're just obsessed with that we'll see on your uh, Twitter timeline once they come out? Oh yeah, our Eric Thomas is here for it for sure. Cannot get enough. Um, and Peter Kispert's short story collection. Um, I know you know who I am. It remind like I really am so excited for that book. I keep trying to get them to send one to me. Um, I cannot wait. There was another short story collection that came out last, maybe two years ago, that was similar, like a queer short story collection called, um, I forget the name of it, but it was by Neil Patel. And it was just like um, an amazing queer short story collection about sort of what it means to be queer and Indian American in America. Um, Oh, I think it was called If You See Me, Do Not Say Hi. It's like all these title, all these books named after grinder aphorisms. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's just fantastic. So those are like some books that I am excited about on the horizon, and also Alana Massad's uh, "All My Mother's Lovers," mm-hmm. um, which I have an arc of, and I just cannot wait to just like dig into for sure. Thank you so much, Brandon. I really love all this. Right. I cannot wait to finally meet you in person. I hope it happens in Tucson. I know you'll be busy, but. No, I please grab me at any time. Oh my Perfect. god. Yeah. All right. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much. This was a real treat. Thank Thanks. you. Have a good one. Bye. See you on Twitter. Bye. See you there. Bye. Yeah, bye. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Check out everything else at daybeautiful.net. Please follow Brandon at BLGTYLR on Twitter. I'll link that in the show notes. Hope you all have a good one. See you next month.